0: If you would, would you you take your Bible and would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And if you remember, when I had the opportunity to speak about a month and a half ago, we went through the first part of Ephesians chapter 4, and my argument from the book of Ephesians was that the things that Ephesians 4 tells us to be and to do leads us to the conclusion that church membership is biblical and right and beautiful. And it's something that we should value and pursue because the things that Ephesians 4 tells us are rightly pursued in an intentional community of believers where um, everyone comes together to pursue growth into Christ's likeness. And so today we want to look from the latter part of Ephesians 4 into Ephesians 5 um, and specifically see what that spiritual growth looks like. If I said in the first message that we're supposed to pursue spiritual growth uh, together, uh, today I want to talk about what that spiritual growth um, actually looks like. And so I'll give you two points. My first point is spiritual growth is progressive. Progressive. And point number two is that spiritual growth is communal. If you're the type of person that likes outlines, um, I've got an outline for you in the center of your bulletin. So if you like to follow along on outlines and see where I am and what's coming up, um, I've got a small little outline with space for notes um, in the center of your bulletin. Let's read that text. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 Going to 5, uh, verse 21. It's, uh, it seems like a long passage, but um, it really is not. Okay, and that's in your pew Bibles. I think it's page 978. So here are the words um, of Paul to the Ephesians and to us, starting in verse 17. He says, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. But all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Chapter 5, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity... Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become uh, partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always Uh, and for everything to God, um, to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray, we'll ask God's blessing, and then we'll get into this text. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word this morning. I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters here this morning that we would uh, rightly attend to your word and give it the regard and the respect and the care that it um, warrants this morning. Let me not be up here um, left to myself and my own devices, but I pray that your grace would uphold me, that I would um, accurately portray uh, what Paul says to the Ephesians through your spirit and what uh, then he is saying to us, um, help us to discern, help us to handle rightly, Lord, and um, I I pray that we are are quick to listen to what Ephesians says. And I ask all this in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Point number one, spiritual growth is progressive. Point number two is that spiritual growth is communal. What I'd like to do this morning is talk about spiritual growth. It's progressive. Uh, and communal. Growing as a Christian, growing in your faith, growing in your obedience and your understanding of God, and growing so that you could better represent Christ to the world around you is a process. It is a continual transformation that we go through. Um, And it is a, a process that is communal, meaning that it's not done alone. We need the help of other believers who have the same intention as we do. So it's progressive and it's communal. So look with me as we begin at how Paul describes the life of these Ephesian believers before they were Christians. The city of Ephesus, if you remember, the story from the book of Acts, was a Greek city that was devoted to the worship of the goddess Diana. Um, when Paul came in and he preached, they had a, a riot there, and they yelled for a space of three hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. There was a huge statue of her, and she was... Uh, worship there. She was the daughter of, of Zeus, according to Greek mythology. Additionally, it seems that black magic and witchcraft were prevalent in the city of Ephesus. When the Ephesians started becoming Christians, they had this huge bonfire and burned all of their books and their sorcery artifacts. It says in Acts that also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of them who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver and so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Consider if that was our church, our small woodside church of 100, 150 people, and the artifacts of sorcery that could be gathered up and burned were worth 50 pieces of silver. If you say it's, a, it's, a sil- it's an American silver coin, that is a significant amount of money to come from one church just in the artifacts that they own to do uh, sorcery with. So that's how they were before they were believers. And that's the way, uh, here's how Paul describes them in the book of um, Ephesians. Um, in verse 17, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. He doesn't paint a very pleasant picture of them. He says that your, your former life, before you were believers, you're like the Gentiles who are futile and vain. Um, in their mind, their, their minds are empty and they're worthless, he says. Their understanding is, is darkened. They're alienated from God due to the ignorance that is in them and the hard-heartedness that is in them. Their hearts are calloused. They have accepted sensuality and immorality as a way of life. And not only that, but they're greedy to practice it. Um, like people get greedy to go to Atlantic City and the prospect of winning there these people are greedy for the prospect of practicing immorality and perhaps this description resonates with you because you are aware of the devastating effects of a life lived apart from god and lived to please ourselves and our fleshly appetites or perhaps this description is a little bit foreign to you because maybe you have been raised in a godly home and you have been spared much of the experience of this type of Life. For some, the life of futility and darkness and alienation from God and a passion for impurity has been the sad reality that they have known for the duration of their lives. For others, they, in God's grace, have been spared seeing what this can look like in their lives. They only understand this from afar, from news stories or from friends and families who have these kind of broken lives. And yet others know that the potential for them to become like this is always there in our hearts. And others, you may sit here knowing that this is your life, and you sit there embracing it as normal and acceptable or finding yourself trapped in it without a way out. So we can see ourselves in the Ephesians either saying our hearts have the potential to be like that or this is what we were like before Christ or that's where I'm at so this is where Ephesians for um, this is where this passage starts out and here's where Paul wants them to end up he wants them to end up in Ephesians chapter 5 he says okay this is what you were this is what you're going to Ephesians chapter 5 verse 15 he says Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as, wise, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He says, this is where I want you to be, Ephesians. Notice um, the transition, right? Start start in Ephesians 4.17, you wind up in Ephesians 5.17, and there's a transformation that has happened. He says, this is what you are, this is what you need to be. This is where you want to end up, walking carefully, making the best use of your time. Uh, Not being foolish, but understanding what God's will is. Not being disengaged with life, but being filled with the the Spirit, controlled by a truth that overflows in your uh, life through music. Um, giving thanks always for everything and submitting to one another. Uh, Paul is calling these believers, he's saying, this is what you came from, this is where you need to go. And notice notice the transformation. They start with futility, but they end up with a carefulness um, about how they live. They end up with an effectiveness Um, with their time and in the world around them. They start with a darkened understanding and they end up understanding God's will. They start alienated and ignorant and hardened and they end up filled with God's spirit, with the truth pouring out from them in in song. They start callous and sensual and impure and they end up giving thanks and submitting to one another. And Paul says, this is the transition that you need to make. But we must understand that this transition is not something that happens to us automatically, quickly, or easily. It's something that we must pursue. That is what we do in church. That is why we are a body of believers that has covenanted together, and we have said, um, I want to avail myself of the resources and the teaching of this church because I want to grow spiritually along with every other believer that is a part of this thing. Um... But it's something that happens slowly. It can be a battle sometimes. So how do we get from point A to point B? How do we get from Ephesians 4.17 to Ephesians 5.17? How do we get from vain-minded, darkened, alienated, callous Ephesians to wise, understanding, spirit-filled, thankful, united believers? And how do we do that at Woodside? And I believe in this text that God has very, very graciously laid out for us the roadmap from point A to point B. Ephesians 4 and 5 is like a roadmap to maturity, laying out for us the steps in which we walk as we pursue Christ. And Paul uh, helps us by giving us um, four analogies. So he says, don't walk according to your former lives. Uh, you have not learned this, like you've learned Christ differently. You've learned something different from Christ. And he gives us four analogies to pursue spiritual growth. And I have them in your, in your outline. It's the analogies um, that are in the second portion. They're, they're the bold words. Clothing, acting, children, and maturity. And each of those is an analogy representing sort of like a step in the, this process of spiritual growth. I, 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 I'm not one of those preachers who's like, okay, four steps to spiritual maturity. But in the text, Paul lays out these four analogies. And then he explains them. And so we we need to look at the text and say, okay, these analogies are laid out in Scripture. What does Paul mean by them? The first one is that of clothing. He says, put off, put on. Paul instructs us. um, He says, walk no longer as, as the Gentiles walk, verse 17, chapter 4. But then he says, verse 22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires. Um, He instructs us to put off the old self, which belongs to your former life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. The old self, the old nature, that is what you were apart from Christ. Christ. Apart from his saving grace, apart from the power of his word, apart from the enabling of his spirit, it is the sum total of everything that we were without Jesus. It is your darkest, dirtiest secrets hidden. It is the hatred of God and fellow man that resides and lingers in each of our hearts. It is our unwavering commitment to ourselves and our pleasure. It is the emptiness by which we delight to live. It is everything that holds a significant place in your life which you know is wrong in the eyes of God. It is that which you pursue that takes you further and further away from Christ. It is the old man, the old nature. If it was, um, Paul represents it as clothing. So it is a uniform that represents the service of an old master. It is your wedding garments from a marriage to an old lover. It is the soiled and putrid rags of a previous and abusive relationship. And it is out from such conditions that Christ has delivered us, and he has made us alive, the new man, the new self, which is a resemblance of God himself. It is the garments of beauty that display his righteousness and holiness. And so Paul tells us, here's what you do. You put off the one, and you put on the other. You know, the dirtiest that I've ever been in my life was when I was on an 11-day wilderness trip to the White Mountains of New Hampshire during my junior year in college. Now, I'm a, I'm a city kid, so I don't know much about camping. Um, I don't know much about getting dirty while camping, but I know that it's not something that I enjoy very much. I also don't enjoy my stuff getting dirty for 11 days straight. Thankfully, there was some indoor plumbing that we were able to uh, use, but there was a lot that I wasn't able to do to get clean. I wasn't able to... Uh, shave. I wasn't able to wash my hair. I wasn't able to use the soap that I like. And pretty much, you're wearing the same things over and over and over. The same hiking gear um, for days upon days. The same uh, jacket rotating between the same, pair, or the same three pairs of socks and hanging them up to dry each night. And everything smelled like sweat and humidity and outdoors and campfire. And I was dirty and felt dirty and uncomfortable during the d- duration of my trip. So when we got back to campus uh, to begin the semester, that was before the semester that we took that trip, it was during the blackout of '03. Uh, I was never more appreciative of a long, warm shower and the opportunity to do laundry. But what if, when I came back and took a nice shower, got all cleaned up, and then once again put on my dirty hiking, hiking pants, my dirty hiking shirt, my dirty rain jacket, my hiking socks and my, my dirty boots all over again, And that's what we're like Um, if after being saved by Christ, we continue living as the vain-minded, darkened, alienated, hard-hearted Gentiles. It is like taking a thoroughly cleansing shower with the choicest of your bath and bodywork soaps and your Trader Joe's shampoo only to go back into your soiled clothes. And Paul tells us that is not how you learned Christ. Put them off and put on the new self. But what frustrates me about Paul is that he'll use these, um, he'll use metaphorical language. Or he, yeah, he'll use metaphoric language to represent something that he wants us to do. And so I look at this and I'm like, okay, put off, put on. Paul, how do I actually do that? How do we actually accomplish that? And Paul often says these things that we find so confusing. He gives us a metaphor of something physical to illustrate the spiritual reality. How do we do it? Paul, some might theorize that you wake up each morning and you say, God, pray, and you say, God, I'm going to put on the new self today. Some people actually teach that. Um, And the reason that doesn't work for me is that if I do that, I know I still feel the same as I did before. I'm still plagued with the same desires and temptations and uh, frustrations and fleshly values. So how can I know that it actually worked? How do I know that I'm really wearing the new garments of the new man of righteousness and holiness? You know, some people, when they, when they do that, they have this, um, they demonstrate this weird tendency to mythologize scripture and to make it weird and complex and, myth- and mystical when the Bible is pretty straightforward. How do we know the difference between the old man and the, and the new man? How do we know what to put off and what to put on? Well, the text is pretty clear. Look at a couple examples. Um, from Ephesians 4, Paul says in verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we, we are members one of another. Verse 26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down upon your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Verse 28, uh, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Even if you take those few examples, notice the parallels between them. Paul tells us to put off the old pattern of life. It's not just enough to put, up, put off, but he tells us to put on the, new, uh, the newness of life or, or the new man. We're not told just to stop doing something. Paul doesn't say, stop lying, stop stealing, stop being foul-mouthed. Um, he tells us to make something new a part of our lives. And so I want to ask you, when is a liar no longer a liar? It is not just when he stops telling lies. When is a thief... No longer a thief. It is not just when he stops stealing. When is a malicious boaster no longer a corrupt communicator? It is not when he simply shuts up. Rather, Paul says that the liar is no longer a liar when he uses his words to minister the truth unto his neighbors. Um, A thief is no longer a thief when he labors to do honest work so that he may practice generosity to those who are needy. The malicious, foul-mouthed boaster is no longer a corrupting communicator, not just when he shuts up, but rather when his words become the means of giving grace and building up others. And do you see yourself in this surely there's no one in this room right who is characteristically a liar a thief or whose words are a corrupting influence right but ask yourself when it regards these things have you put on the new man or are you still wearing the old and hideous garments of a life apart from jesus christ do you make yourself a neighbor to those whose life you could influence by speaking the truth in by speaking the truth to them. Do you fish for it and compete for people's attention and praise? Do you capitalize on the use of other people's emotions and time and material possessions while dealing with a closed fist and a slack hand towards those who have a need of you? Do you love to get praise and compliments while grumbling and complaining and never saying a word to refresh, encourage, or dignify another person? That, my friends, is stealing and theft. Does your anger evade reasonable boundaries? Does it continue after the sun goes down and right through the next day? Does anger possess you or do you possess it, my friends, put on the new man. And what is more straightforward than the way that Paul tells us to do it here? How much rustling in prayer do we need to do? How much seeking of God's will do we need to do to understand the difference between speaking um, lies and speaking truth? How much seeking of God's will do we have to do to understand the difference between Uh, stealing and being generous, how much seeking of God's will, how much rustling in prayer do we have to do to understand whether our words are a corrupting influence or they are a ministry of grace. And so it's even though it's a difficult thing to do often, it is a very simple thing. It doesn't take a lot of wisdom to understand the difference between put off and put on. And, and that's why it's the first step. It's like this very simple step: put off and put on. It's something that um, doesn't evade all of us. You don't need to be smart enough. You don't need to spend an hour in prayer and say, "Okay, I, you know, Lord, please reveal to me if my words are wholesome and they minister grace." No, you, you, you know it. This is not a difficult one to figure out. And then l- let's look at the second analogy. B Imitators of God. Paul gives us a second analogy, that of acting. He says that imitators of um, be imitators of God as beloved children, chapter five, verse one. Walk in love as Christ loved. There's many things that um, about God that we can imitate. Artists can imitate. His creative brilliance. Scholars can imitate or emulate his profound wisdom. Scientists can strive to discover the depths of the physical world that he has created and try to emulate his care for life. But in the context of our spiritual growth, when Paul tells us to be imitators, he picks the thing that is hardest to imitate about God. It says, um, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. He rehearses the gospel as the basis for this. Christ loved us and gave himself for us, encapsulated in his love as God's generosity, his sacrifice with a view to God's pleasure. And to show the reverse, to give us a directive of what being imitators is not, Paul says that sexual immorality, impurity, and coveting, not only are these things not to be done, but they're not even to be named in a way that legitimizes them. Because the essence of sexual immorality is to ravage and to take what does not belong to you physically, emotionally. It is to corrupt and to destroy. It is agreed to please self. It is the antithesis of love. Sexual immorality is acting out of a drama that is a protest against the gospel. Paul says, do not be deceived. Don't let anyone fool you and make you think that these things that he is talking about Um, and suggests that they're not a big deal, um, to make them appear to be good and right. He says that the wrath of God is stored for such things as this. I want you to notice the analogy also that he uses. Be imitators. It's the analogy of acting like someone. And I want you to notice how he says to carry that out in chapter 5, verse 1. He says to do that as beloved children. You know, as I preach, in certain aspects, I try to be an imitator. I try to emulate our our pastor. And one major thing that I did this morning is that I wrote out my entire sermon in manuscript form so I know exactly what I'm going to say because I I saw a pastor doing that, and I said, hey, I want to imitate that. I want to emulate that. I want to develop as a preacher, so I'm going to imitate what he does. You can tell me later if it went well or not, instead of just having an outline. But if you were to examine my motivation for doing so, certainly, partly, I am doing it um, with a uh, respect for our pastor, with uh, wanting to learn from him and grow with him as a preacher. But beyond that, there is also some selfish and covetous motivation deep hidden in my heart There is a lingering desire to be good at preaching. There is a desire for the glory of myself and wanting you all to think well of me. And don't we often do that? Don't we become imitators of God when there's something to be gained for us? But consider by comparison what Paul is calling us to. He says, be imitators of God as dear children. Consider then by comparison another person who imitates our pastor. When she walks in on Sunday morning, if you know his pastor's daughter, Emma, you'll see that she likes to go up to the stage, and sometimes she'll hide herself behind this pulpit, and she's two feet tall, so she'll peer over it as best as she can. She's not really able to, and she'll exclaim something like, Daddy, preach! Right? She's imitating her dad in the best way that she knows how, standing where he stands, sort of doing what he does and trying to interact with people in the way that her dad does. That's the imitation of a child, not um, in in a competitive, self-seeking way. And that's the prerequisite of, of what Paul wants us to be, as imitators of God, to do so as beloved children, to do so with an admiration and an affection for God that comes through the gospel having its proper work in our lives. And so then Paul takes us Um, on the transition from being imitators to the next analogy, that of children. He says to us in verse 7, he says, therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So the next analogy is children. And notice the progression of these uh, analogies. That when you start off with clothing, if I was to wear someone's clothing, if I was to... um, Dress up um, like, someone. let's say I dressed up like President Obama. You might look at me and say, okay, there's Vijay. He's wearing a suit that sort of makes him look like President Obama. And if I hid behind the pulpit and you couldn't see me and I did an impersonation of the president uh, using his, his catchphrases and using his mannerisms and his voice to the best of my ability, You might say, hey, I know it's VJ up there, but he sounds kind of like the president. But if I was actually related to him and I bore the resemblance of him, you would see his face or um, his features in my face. And so the analogies get stronger and stronger and stronger, from clothing to imitation to actually resembling him as a child, be children of light. It's interesting that he would link children with light because children bear the visual resemblance of their parents. And this whole passage deals with how light makes things visible. His first directive to us is to to discern what is pleasing unto the Lord. Um, It's uh, verse 10. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Now it takes more wisdom than just put off and put on um, for such a thing, you need spiritual clarity and sound judgment. You need light to be able to discern. But also, the intimacy we have with the Father helps us to see what pleases the Father. I want you to understand just how these two things work work together. It is the light that He gives us that helps us to know Him, and it is knowing Him that um, gives us light. And, and so it's this harmony between the two of them, being children and knowing God as children and obtaining his light and having his light guide our path. And therefore, Paul says, once you were darkness, but now you are light. Walk as children of light. The way light interacts with darkness is inevitably to um, expose it, to make it visible, to manifest what is hidden in the darkness. This is what our lives ought to look like how, how we live and what we value and the discernment through which we evaluate the world around us is inevitably shining into the darkness. It's giving visibility and clarity to our footsteps. It exposes the works of darkness all around us for what they really are. It is inviting others into that light. And so then Paul gives us the final transition from light to the next analogy, wisdom or maturity. So... Here's a progression. First, you're just putting on the clothing. Then you're acting like it. Then you bear the resemblance as a child. And then you walk as a mature adult. As it says in verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Once you have light radiating, it's only sensible that the light guides your step. Paul says... Look carefully at how you walk. Walk carefully. Walk wisely. Be a mature believer. I like the way the King James says it. It says, Walk circumspectly. It means to walk or to live your life with an accuracy, a carefulness about your steps, with diligence, not foolishly, but with um, wisdom. So, what does that look like for the believer? It says in verse 18. Um, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There's two things being compared here. There's a life of drunkenness, and then there's a life of being filled with the Spirit. And this is not just in the English standard. The King James says it as well. It says, do not be drunk with wine wherein is excess. Paul says, and the ESV translates it, do not be drunk with wine for that is but that is uh, debauchery. Debauchery. Excess. What's that referring to? That word that's translated debauchery or excess, it's the same word that describes the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. It says that he wasted all of his father's substance with riotous living or excessive uh, living, lavish living. When he comes home, the older brother says that he's wasted the father's inheritance. On prostitutes. So, this is what this is the type of thing it's referring to. You now, I, I would never be the type of person to stand up here in the pulpit and speak, you know, on, on behalf of God through His Word and say that, you know, you can't have a glass of wine with, with dinner. But I want to point out something that is important for us to see in the scripture about alcohol. Whenever alcohol is used in scripture, to create the experience whereby someone can disengage from life and its responsibilities, it's always spoken of as a bad thing. For example, in Genesis, the daughters of Lot make the father drunk in order to commit incest with him. Job pays sacrifices for his sons and daughters for sins that they might have committed while partying and they were drunk and they didn't know. In the Proverbs, King Lemuel's mother in Proverbs 31 Warns him not to be drunk because there's people who depend on him for justice that he cannot provide if he is a drunken slob. David makes Uriah drunk so that he would forget his obligations as a soldier and go and sleep with his wife. Um... Maybe some of you don't struggle with this, but when your handling of alcohol is such that it cultivates for you a riotous, wasteful lifestyle that you retreat into, that that makes you carelessly disengage from life's troubles and its responsibilities, that is not wisdom. That is not walking circumspectly. When we walk circumspectly or with wisdom, carefully, We are not looking to disengage or retreat from the life around us. Verse 16 says that we make the best use of our time. We're redeeming the time because we understand that the world and the days in which we live are evil. We are not to disengage or escape from life. Rather, we are to live it carefully, wisely, intentionally, and proclaiming, redeeming grace into it. What that looks like for the believer is addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody with your heart unto the Lord and giving of thanks. This is why we as a church pay pay careful attention to the ministry of music. We're intentional about it. We're careful about it. We want songs to align with the sermon. This is why we practice them and present them well, Because music is a tool that we use to proclaim the truth. Music is what we use to admonish one another. Music is what we use to express to our hearts and corporately to one another how we ought to think and feel about God. Music is what we will take with us as we leave the worship um, service and going into the week. Music in our service, whether it's the choir or the worship team, is never designed to be a performance or entertainment. It is used to generate worship, to proclaim the truth, to adjust our emotions in accordance with the truth. It is used to prepare our hearts to listen to the preaching of the word. In our music, we affirm back to God in song what our hearts have received through the words through the ministry of the word, corporate singing has historically had a hugely important place in the practice of Christianity. So notice the contrast. Both things, drunk with wine, filled with the spirit, describe something that fills you or controls you. One causes you to disengage from life and, cons- um, and consequently uh, disengage from the truth and from fellow believers the other results in engaging others with the truth in an excellent beautiful and melodious way so notice the analogies that we've been through clothing acting children and wisdom each one of them is a little bit stronger than the other each one of them uh, you're you're bearing the resemblance of god a little bit more and more and more in your life clothing then acting then bearing the resemblance as children and then walking in wisdom as a mature Christian believer. So that's part one, growth is progressive. The second part is very short, growth is communal. Spiritual growth is communal. This is a truth that we see from this passage of scripture is that um, spiritual growth is properly sought in community with other believers who are intentional about pursuing the same thing that you are. Notice that in the context there is nothing that would give us the idea that spiritual growth happens alone. That happens, you know, individually, alone, away from everyone else. If I could just go off to an island with my Bible, then I could really grow. If I just got rid of the people around me, but didn't have to go to church, or didn't have to listen in church and sing and do all that stuff, like, then I could really grow. Wrong. In this passage, truth is spoken to one another. Generosity is practiced towards others. Words are used to build up. Tenderness, tenderheartedness and forgiveness are demonstrated to one another. The passage is written to a plurality of believers. It's written to a body of believers. We are told to be imitators as beloved children, plural. We are told that Christ loved us and gave himself for us, plural. We are called saints, plural. We are called children of light, plural. We are to address one another, in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. We are told to submit to one another. And that's not inconsequential. Paul does that because he's addressing a church, a body of believers. He's he's addressing a plurality of people and telling them how they are to grow. We are to pursue spiritual growth together with other believers. If you've ever heard that song, in, In the garden says, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. Christ comes, he walks with me, he talks with me. I understand the sentiment of that song. It's, it's nice, it makes us feel good, but it's just a horrendous analogy of spiritual growth. Because spiritual growth, communing with Christ, is not done alone in a garden, just you and Jesus. You grow in a community of believers who help you and admonish you along the way. Um, Ephesians 4 tells us that the health and life of the believer is tied to the body. I need all of you for me to grow as a believer. We need each other to grow as a believer. That's what church membership is that we discussed um, five or six weeks ago. It's a covenant between people who want the same thing. They say, yes. I'm a part of this. I'm in. I want the same thing that you want, and I want to be in a covenant with you whereby we could help each other to um, obtain that. So here's the gospel. <clears throat> in sending Christ, God redeemed for himself a people, not individuals he redeemed for himself, a people, a global church that has spread over the millennia of history, you know, all over the entire globe. And we, Woodside, are a small, little expression of that church. The church is some from out of every tribe and tongue, people, and nation. It is Christ's purchased possession to declare his praises uh, in the world. He did not redeem individuals. We did not relate to him solely as individuals. He redeemed the people for himself. I've I've heard people say, well, if you were the only person on on earth, Christ would have come and died for you. You know, that's kind of hypothetical. It's kind of silly because that's not what happened. That's silly reasoning because the Bible shows that he came with the intention of redeeming his people of redeeming his sheep. He comes back for his people, his chosen ones. The joy that was set before him when he went to the cross, Hebrews says, was the prospect of redeeming a multitude um, and making them like unto him. So the gospel is something that we believe and accept at an individual level in our lives. We accept Christ as our personal savior, but the way that we grow is in a community with others who have done the same thing, who have also accepted Christ as their personal savior, and we come together and we pursue spiritual growth. And Ephesians gives us four simple analogies along which to do it. that of clothing, acting, children, and maturity. And so let's use that and let's um, walk in a newness of life and walk in accordance um, with what Paul tells us here. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, thank you for your goodness. Uh, And thank you for the opportunity to look into uh, Ephesians chapter 4. I pray that we're able to discern um, and be challenged um, by this passage of Scripture. I pray that you use this, use it to nourish us and to strengthen us. Lord, I pray for any in, in our, our room who um, lives contrary to the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that you would um, work in their hearts and in their minds and grant them uh, repentance so that they might um, accept the truth of what Christ did for us. We'll pray this all in his name. Amen.